Grace and peace to you from God our Father, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who comforts us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Here in part, one of the verses from our epistle lesson, it says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit, and let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So far our text. Last week, we talked about how our life in the flesh is crucified, and that we live a new life in the Spirit of God. We, we talked about the fruits of the flesh, and then we talked about the fruits of the Spirit. We talked about how one of these was the manner of our former life, but now the fruits of the Spirit are the manner of our life in Christ, in the Gospel, as we cast off the fruits of the flesh, and now the Holy Spirit produces new and holy fruit in us. And so today, St. Paul teaches us what this life in the Spirit looks like in the context of our life that is lived together in, as members of God's holy congregation, God's holy Christian church. How does the Holy Spirit call us to regard and treat our fellow Christians? How ought we to deal with one another when we're frustrated or irritated? What St. Paul describes here is utterly contrary to our fallen nature. See, the picture of the congregation is one where every person lives in humility, seeking what is best for his neighbor, encouraging those who teach, and restoring those who are in error and sin. To provoke our neighbors to vain conflicts that are born out of jealousy, to point out our neighbor's sin, for the sake of love, rather than for the sake of pride, not to subordinate our Christian neighbors, but to lift them up and restore them through the gift of Christ's forgiveness. It's a beautiful image. The way of love is completely contrary to the world. The world gives us a different picture of living in humility and love. The world will say, well, there's two things that you can do. It'll either tell us to live and let live, just ignore it, don't worry. Or the world will tell us to cling to our grievances and use them to subordinate our neighbor to ourselves or our tribe or whatever it may be. And so the world says that we are either called to ignore and blindly accept our neighbor's sin or to use it to our own advantage. And we see this happening pretty commonly in the world that we live in today. It's the common and seeming natural state that the world uh, we live in lives in. As the Christian church speaks out against sin, or the individual deals with somebody sinful in their family or their community or their immediate uh, friendships, they're told they're being judgmental. How dare you pick on this poor person. How dare you call somebody else a sinner? And all of a sudden, what happens? The masses triangulate against you, and you're not even allowed to privately believe that some behaviors are sinful. We saw this a few years ago when it was discovered that the founder of a popular chicken restaurant did not personally support same-sex marriage. The world went mad. How dare you not support this? 
All of a sudden, his entire business is attacked, his livelihood is boycotted. And the same goes for the bakers and the florists. They, they tend not to want to lend their talents to celebrate something contrary to their individual consciences. And what happens? The world goes after them. All the legal and public power is bent against these people to force them to change their belief that something is sinful. And the same can be said about any, any uh, multitude of sins, about abortion or divorce or premarital sex or drunkenness and any other myriad of sins that take place in this world that the world demands we accept and celebrate. How many have abandoned the truth out of fear of this happening to them? Out of fear of the masses turning against us, out of fear of the crowd saying, no, you're wrong. How many of us are, are afraid to rebuke a friend or a relative for any sin that might be harmful to them because we are afraid we'll not fit into the world's demand of a complete tolerance for that sin? It's not so altruistic and protecting for the little guy either, no. They're not trying to defend these people. No, they're defending another person's sin as an opportunity to gain social advantages. You can say you're on the side of justice, you're on the side of freedom. You can post it on your corporate website, you can put it on your Twitter feed, and all of a sudden everybody claps for you. This is how the world treats sin. Then, of course, there's the other way that the world wants us to hold on to sin, and that is grievance. The world tells us to hold grudges so that we can use them at a later date to better our personal position. That's what uh, a recent ad about cigarette companies I saw was all about. It wasn't even criticizing the addictive and harmful nature of tobacco, but how cigarette filters harm the environment. And the last words of the ad were, this is something we can never forgive. Well, why? Why won't the sponsors of that advertisement not forgive the tobacco company? The grievance is profitable. Through lawsuits, through social credit, people gain and receive power by not forgiving. And we see this every time an election season comes up and the records of all the politicians are plastered on every billboard and commercial as one side paints the other out to be a demon. Because look what he did 35 years ago. Throwing every mistake a person has ever made out to the public. Why? Why is that so advantageous? The same tactic is used in just about every family argument as husbands and wives bring up mistakes that their spouses made years ago so that they can win a fight, right? Or when siblings bring up bad behaviors of their brother or sister that happened in childhood in order to get their way now and today. According to the world, grievances are more profitable than forgiveness. Because when you hold on to your neighbor's sin, you have the golden opportunity to use it against them later. Why forgive when you can cash in on your neighbor's sin in the future? This is the image that the world has. This is the image of sin and your neighbor's sin that it embraces. Either we ignore it and support it so that we can use that for our own advantage, or we hold on to it so once again we can use it to our own advantage. Do you know what is lacking here? Love. True Christian love. Now, 
This world does not know what love is. The world celebrates grievance. The world encourages sin. But that is not what the Christian is called to do. The Christian is called to love as Christ has loved us. And that means that we are to appeal to the truth to correct an erring neighbor. Not to gain a personal advantage over that neighbor or to grow conceited after not failing in the same way that our neighbor fails, but for the sake of that person's soul and their standing before God in Christ. That is why fellow Christians correct sin and error in their neighbors. It is love that drives Christians to rebuke. It is love that causes Christians to hold each other accountable. It says in Proverbs, better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. And later in Proverbs it says, whoever says to the wicked, you're in the right, will be accursed by the peoples, abhorred by the nations. But those who rebuke the wicked will have delight and a good blessing will come upon them. We call those we love out from sins so that they can see and know the graciousness of Christ. The entire goal is the restoration of the sinner to the body of Christ. The entire goal is the good of our neighbor who has fallen into error and sin. And for Christ's sake, if that neighbor turns, we forgive. There are advantages to restoring a father brother or a fallen brother in the faith through forgiveness. There is peace and unity in the congregation. There is restoration. There is love. Yet that's not why we forgive. These things are bonuses. Martin Luther says this. He says, A single Christ means more to me than an infinite number of concords, peace, and love in a congregation. As for those who love Christ and who faithfully teach and believe his word, however, we are not only to preserve peace and concord with them, but also to bear their sins and weaknesses and restore to them, when they fall, the forgiveness of sins, as Paul commands here in a gentle spirit. And so when we think about this, we think about Jesus. We think about how Jesus gently restores sinners. Think about Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. Here's a woman caught red-handed in her sin. And according to the law and customs of the Jews, she was to be sentenced to death. She was to be stoned. Yet what does Jesus do? He disperses the crowds who were ready to stone her, saying, Let he who has no sin cast the first stone. He is saying here that even as this woman's sins are grievous and harmful, Every person standing in judgment over her was sinners too, who have sins that are also grievous and harmful. And then Jesus restores this woman by saying, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus isn't accepting her sin. He's not serving as an apologist for adultery. He's not letting her off the hook. But he's doing something entirely different. He is forgiving her for no other reason than that is who he is and what he does. He forgives and restores sinners. And it's all done with humility and the understanding that to err is human. That tomorrow, that same brother that needs to be corrected may end up being the one who has to correct me. 
because I am just as sinful as he is. I have a sinful flesh. I, too, am capable of grievous and terrible sins. I, too, will need to be called to repentance. I, too, need absolution. This is the attitude that we should all have when correcting a sinner in the congregation of Christ. When we correct and rebuke each other, we do so from that position of humility. Ultimately, we stand humbled before Christ and his word. And that's what is used in correcting a sinner. I don't just arbitrarily make up my own conception of what is truly right and what is truly wrong. No. I rest on the word of God. That is how the Spirit of God works. The Holy Spirit of God is what tells us what is sinful and what is righteous. And so that's what we preach, as we remember from first, our 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so it is from that position of humility under the word of God and the knowledge that we too are sinners that correction and calls to repentance become works of love. That is what Paul is talking about when he says, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. What is he saying here? But well, that each of us will have to stand before God. We will have to answer for our own individual sins as we sit before the judgment seat. And we must confess before God that we are guilty, as the scriptures say, all have sinned. And this humility should also drive us towards the only righteousness that we can stand upon as we stand before God on the last day, and that is Jesus Christ alone. He is your righteousness. He is your defense in that day and that time of judgment. Christ alone earns you forgiveness. Christ alone pardons your sins. Christ speaks to every single one of our sins as we live here in this fallen world. And he declares they're forgiven. By his blood, by his cross, they are atoned for. And he has revealed to us this promise in his word. And that same word that accuses you of your sins accuses me of my sins. And when we let that word stand and speak in authority over our lives, over our behaviors, and the life and behavior that we have before God, we stand in humility. And that's a good place to be, humbled before God in the forgiveness of sins. Just as the scriptures accuse us of sin, they declare, you are saved. They declare, you are forgiven. Salvation for sinners is found in the gospel of Christ. It is the forgiveness of sins that is won for us by Christ. And so when a sinner is converted and repents, it is the credit and the glory of God. God has done a great thing. God has helped and saved that neighbor in need. And when we live in humility towards each other, this credit and glory of God is something to be rejoiced in. As Jesus says, the one who speaks of his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Here, Jesus is speaking about himself. He glorifies his Father and speaks only what his Father has told him. And in doing so, he is glorified by the Father. We're no better than Jesus. 
We're not greater than Jesus is. And so when we speak, when we act, when we deal with each other in love, we speak the word that's been given to us in the Bible. We rebuke from the words of the Bible. We encourage from the words of the Bible. We correct each other and comfort each other with the word of the Bible. St. Paul calls us here to live by the Spirit. He calls us to read and to know the Word of God, and in this we will be blessed and live as a blessing toward our neighbor. And when we are fully formed by the Word, we are equipped not just to rebuke our neighbors, but also ourselves. As we apply those scriptures to ourselves, as St. Paul says, keep watch over yourself, lest you too are tempted. That means we do not let sin prosper in the congregation of Christ, but also that we understand the weaknesses of our own hearts. Another reason that we contrive to not rebuke our brother is that that rebuke may someday be applied to me. And that makes me vulnerable. The old sinner doesn't like that possibility. And if we overlook everyone else's sin, then maybe everyone will overlook mine. But that's not how we have been called. We have been called to keep in step with the Spirit. And that means that as we live in our calling as Christians, we live as sinners who have been forgiven for all of our sins for the sake of Jesus. In Jesus' death on the cross, we are declared righteous and good by our loving God. The same God who loves us, forgives us, and justifies us, and he is the God who produces good fruit in us. Those fruits of repentance and faith. The fruits are worked in us by the word. That is where the Holy Spirit produces and works good fruit in our hearts. That word must be proclaimed to us. That word must be taught to us. We must dwell and live in that word. It says in Romans, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who publish the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Did you hear that? And this is where the second half of our lesson comes into play today. The word of God must be preached. Preachers must be called. God sends men into the church to preach the word of God, and it is a daunting task, let me tell you. Preachers rarely see the fruits of their preaching. When a pastor preaches a sermon, teaches a Bible study, works with the confirmation children, and lives in his calling, it's a labor that does not have an immediate reward. It's not like building a house or selling something. When you build a house, at the end, you see, hey, a house. When you sell something, you see, hey, here's a profit. But for me, I don't live in your life. I cannot look into your heart and see the word taking root. I do not know exactly how the gospel has provided me with comfort or how the law of God has directed your behavior in your life. I cannot see your full repentance. And it's easy for a lie to form and enter into a pastor's mind and heart that everything he does is in vain. 
as the sinners still sin, as the person who comes to church once a year hears the word and is gone again for another year, as the person who comes to church once a year has the same perennial problems that they had the year before. And as the same perennial problems exist in a congregation at any given time in any given place, pastors often are forced to ask themselves, am I doing any good? Are sinners being restored? Are we being called to humble faith? Are we seeking to be reconciled and live in love towards one another? Have I really helped anyone? Have I really done anything good? Has anyone grown in knowledge and understanding? Has an unbeliever been blessed in the gospel? And that's why Paul says something very insightful here. He says, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. In other words, he's saying, encourage your pastor. You guys do a good job at that, by the way. When he's encouraged, he'll preach more boldly. How do you do this? Well, you show up to church regularly. When you come to church only a few times a year, you're showing him that you don't value his ministry, and it hurts. But more importantly, it hurts you when you deprive yourself of the means of grace. And showing up, support him physically. See, that's not a problem here, but there are so many pastors I talk to around the country who struggle to make a living as their congregations turn a blind eye and refuse to contribute to his needs. And when this happens, they are not just hurting their shepherd, they're depriving themselves. This is what happens as they, they don't see the need or the importance or the care that the gospel provides. Having a minister of the gospel is in their life. When the faithful come, when they receive good preaching of the word, when a sinner is converted, when the pious are strengthened, when the church supports its preachers, it makes life in the church and the ministry of your pastor more joyful. When Christians love God's word, they will support the preaching of that word. They will attend to it. They will come to Bible class. They will be present in the divine worship. They will talk to their pastor about questions they have concerning the word of God. And they will allow that word to take full effect in their lives. And when this happens, they will reap good fruit. As Paul says here, you reap what you sow. Sow God's word into your life. Come to church. Come to Bible class. Hear the word preached. Read the Bible in your free time. What better things are there to have in your life? What is a better use of your time? What would prove to be a better investment than to support your congregation, to encourage your pastor, to dwell in the word? Not only for your pastor's sake, but for your sake and for the sake of Christ who dwells and lives in forgiveness in our midst. Because those who love the gospel will live in the gospel. And so as we think about and try to summarize St. Paul's words for us today, we can see the ultimate thing that Paul wants us to live in and apply to our lives is the gospel of Christ. 
And to live in the gospel is to rejoice in the forgiveness of sins. It's to love our neighbor enough to call them to forgiveness when they need it. It is to rejoice in restoring somebody who has hurt us for the sake of love. It's to value our pastors enough to support them in their preaching and their teaching. It is to bear one another's burdens so that they too may experience and know this forgiveness. It's to live in patience towards our neighbors around us, even though sometimes they might be difficult to deal with. To live in this way is to love. Our love for each other is only an echo of the love that Christ has for us as we live in this world. And all of this is worked out in the Spirit. As He works through the Word, as He works through the forgiveness of sins, as He gives us that saving and wonderful faith that Jesus Christ has died for us, this produces this good fruit within us so that we live in love and patience and gentleness and self-control as we live under the grace and mercy of our perfect Lord, Jesus Christ. And so we bear each other's burdens in love. We forgive each other's sins in love. We support and attend to the preaching and the hearing of God's word in love. And not just the love that we bear in our own hearts, but the love that is presented to us and that fills our lives and our minds and our hearts in the perfect gospel of Jesus Christ. That being said, let us pray. Heavenly Father, send your Holy Spirit into your church so that we live in love toward one another. Sow the gospel into our lives so that we learn to hold it as our greatest and highest good. Help us to lift one another up in love, correcting those who are in error and supporting those who preach the word. And cause us to live in humility so that we never grow conceited and think that we do not need the communion of your holy church. And above all, forgive us our sins for the sake of Jesus, who has died, risen, and now reigns over all creation. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in the true faith, the life everlasting. In the name of Jesus, amen.